What's up, everyone? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, host of the Adult Education Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. This is episode 65, and joining me is Dr. Danielle Dick. Now, before we get started, I do want to take a second to thank you for checking out the podcast. Adult Education was formerly known as Be More Well. So if you were looking for Be More Well, you are in the right place. Don't worry. If you did miss why I changed the name, you can go back a few episodes. Check out episode 60 for more information on that. But thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to listen and to hang out for a bit. I hope you're able to find some new information, maybe some knowledge and inspiration each week from my guests. I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show so you'll be notified of all future episodes. And if you've got a minute, it would be very helpful if you could leave a rating and review so the podcasting gods know what you think of adult education. It's been a couple weeks since I've posted an episode. I am sorry about that. I'll talk more about that in my next episode coming up, uh, I think, tomorrow. But I don't want to take anything away from this conversation that I had because as a parent, I really did like this one a lot. And I do think all parents can relate to the idea that they don't want to screw up their kids, right? Everything that we do, we can't help but think, how is that going to impact our daughter or son moving forward? Is she getting too much TV? Does he eat the right things? Should we not argue in front of them? We second guess everything we do as parents. And that's really just part of the deal, right? I think you sign off on that in the contract. But new research is showing that we don't have nearly the impact on our child's behavior as we think. Now, on the one hand, that's a little heartbreaking because we all like to think that we have a huge influence on them. But on the other hand, it really does add a sense of relief, right? So if it's not us, the parents, what does control our child's behavior? Well, according to Dr. Danielle Dick, it's genetics. Each child is uniquely coded with predispositions that influence every aspect of their human behavior. Things from fearfulness to impulsivity to the likelihood that they'll throw a temper tantrum at the store, they're all part of genetics. So next time your kid freaks out at Trader Joe's, yeah, just blame their genes. Now, all this is not to say that parents can just sit back and watch, but it does take a little pressure off of us, and it lets us focus on different things. Things like learning how our child is wired. Instead of using one model of parenting and sticking with it, we can tailor our strategies to best fit the habits and learning of our child. For example, when I was growing up, I think it's safe to say my mom ruled with an iron fist. We had very strict rules we had to abide by, and that was it. There was no wiggle room. But that's not the kind of thing that I handled well. I was the kind of person that needed to understand why the rules were the way they were. I wanted to discuss them. I can't help but wonder after this conversation with Dr. Dick if my relationship with my mom would have been better or different if this research had been out back then. You know what I mean? We could have understood each other better. Dr. Dick is a distinguished Commonwealth professor of psychology and human and molecular genetics at Virginia Commonwealth University. She directs a research institute on behavioral and emotional health, and she recently published a book called The Child Code, Understanding Your Child's Unique Nature for Happier, More Effective Parenting. It's really, really interesting stuff, and I'm excited to share this conversation with you. And before we jump into the chat, just a reminder to subscribe to Adult Education so you'll be notified of all future episodes. And if you could take a minute to rate and review the show, I'd appreciate that. How are you today? Good. Oh, I love that you have a co-host. Yes, I do. A co-host that was not prepared for a nap when it was time to do this conversation. So uh, she's joining us today, and we'll just cross our fingers that we can get through Yes. This. 
It, it actually is a really good illustration of how most things in parenting work, right? Right. Not always as you expect. <laughs> you know, it was it was great at the, you know, when she was born, she's nine months old. So when she was born, it was kind of easy to do these midday interviews because she would just be sleeping all day or I could lay her down and I knew she wouldn't move anywhere when she was down. But now she's just on the go and I can't turn my back for more than five seconds. So yes, she is here and yes. hopefully we'll be okay. <laughs> I, I too had, my son was a very easy, small child and baby. And I was like, this is great. It's like having a sweet new hobby. Cause I could, you know, take him to work with me and he'd sit quietly in his chair and, you know, I could take him out to lunch and to dinner. And yes, all of a sudden then that ended as soon as he got a little older, a little more mobile, a little more personality. <laughs> I, I mean, I love that the personality is starting to come out now and, and I love how adventurous she is. I just think it's exciting to watch her as she's learning, you know, she climbed up a stair the other day and it, she just seems so proud of herself, even though I was terrified she was going to fall. She seems so happy. And it's, it's such an exciting point in life to just be able to watch everything happen for the first time with her, but it makes getting work done during the day a lot harder. <laughs> details. Yes. Right. Those tiny details, those tiny details. Um, well, Dr. Danielle Dick, this uh, book is really interesting and uh, I'm so excited that it came out now because I am a new parent. So now I've got uh, a good way to hit the ground running with this sort of idea of parenting here. I have to admit, though, a, a tiny piece of me died while reading the introduction because you tell us that we don't have nearly as much impact as we think that we do. But at the same time, I felt a sense of relief because now I know that if she's messed up, it's not all my fault. Not all my fault. Well, I really hope parents come away with more of the relief part. That is definitely my primary take home message that so much of what the world tells us as parents is you have to do all the things. If you really love your child, you're going to worry about this and that. And, and it really leads us to put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And so I think that by understanding the fundamental biological fact that our kids do come wired with their own unique genetic dispositions, they are not little blank clumps of clay that we get to mold into exactly the dreamy human beings that we might have imagined actually take some of the pressure off of us as parents. Because if our kids are struggling or not turning out perfectly, or we're finding that their behavior is not exactly how we had always hoped it would be, we can understand that some of that is differences in just how their brains are wired. It's not that we're doing anything wrong as parents. I kept thinking back to when I was younger, I can recall my mom, you know, when I would do something bad, she would go, oh, you're going to get payback when you have a kid. And it's funny reading your book. I'm like, she didn't know this at the time, but that's almost literally what you're talking about is that there's so there's this genetic makeup in our children that comes with them when they're born. I, I guess the the old saying would be that you're going to have a kid just like you. So they're going to pay you back for all the torture you gave to me kind of thing. I do recall my mother also. I was a strong-willed, somewhat challenging child. And I recall my mother saying to me at once, all the things that drive me crazy about myself, now I have to deal with in you too. <laughs> I think that was during my teenage years. But the idea that our kids are 
a mix up of our genes and the other biological parents' genes. And so oftentimes they will have characteristics that might match ours for better or worse, and characteristics that sometimes might be very different from ours. And those can lead to different types of challenges when there is either a match or a mismatch, mm. depending on what dimension it is and how those two things play together between the parent and the child. That is interesting because you, know, you could have two people that are very different procreate and now you don't really know what you're going to get when the kid comes out. Cause where is this kid going to go? My wife and I joke about that. Cause I'll always say that she'll say her love language is affirmation or physical touch. And I always say my love language is leave me alone. let me be, you know, I'm so curious, you know, what's going to happen with our daughter now? Where is she going to fall on this spectrum? Well, and that's a great illustration of how sometimes when there are mismatches, it can lead to tension that is unintentional or that sometimes we don't even realize. And so, for example, my son and I, there's ways that we are matched and there's ways that we are mismatched. And each of those has led to its own types of challenges. So we are both matched on high emotionality. So in my book, I talk about three big dimensions kids differ on, extroversion, emotionality, and effortful control. Well, we are matched on high emotionality, which means that when we're drawing a picture and all of a sudden out of nowhere, he goes from happily drawing his picture to crumpling it up and throwing it on the floor and storming out of the room. I recall that a babysitter once said, what in the world just happened? She didn't know how to handle it. And I went, oh, I know. The picture wasn't turning out exactly the way that he had hoped. Perhaps the blue was a slightly darker shade than he wanted the sky to be. And so now it was ruined, right? And he's just, he had a temperament that was quick to frustration. And I recognize that because I had been that way as a child. In another sense, though, we're mismatched on extroversion. I'm much more extroverted than he is. And before I realized that, I was planning Saturday morning these big outings with my friends and all their kids, and we'd go to kids' festivals and museums. And as we were about to leave, I'd say, guess what? We're going to meet up with so-and-so and so-and-so. And all of a sudden, the shoes would come off. They'd get thrown against the wall. He'd go storming up to his room. And I would think, what just happened? That was not the fun Saturday morning I was anticipating. And it was because I hadn't figured out yet that actually he was much more introverted than I was. So my idea of fun was his idea of torture. And once we'd figured that out, I mean, of course, at that point, his brain was not developed enough to say, mom, It's very stressful and overwhelming for me when you put me into situations with a ton of kids I don't know every weekend. Instead, he just threw his shoe across the room. And so it's those kinds of things that by understanding how our kids are wired, and the book has quizzes for parents to fill out, so you can actually figure out where they fall on those dimensions. And there's quizzes for you to take about you as well. So you can think about how your disposition and how your child's disposition and potentially how your partner's disposition, um, where there are matches and where there are mismatches, because 
Sometimes we inadvertently provide environments that are not a good fit for our child, or we're using parenting strategies that are not the best strategy for the way our kids are wired. And so really the book is about how understanding your child's unique genetic makeup can help you as a parent. It can simplify your life by taking off some of the pressure and by helping you adapt strategies that are likely to be most important and to work best for your unique kiddo. It's funny, you know, just that example you gave about setting things up on Saturday morning with your friends and their kids and, you know, it being, you know, theoretical torture to your child. Uh, it's funny as an adult, if you were to meet someone that was like, you know what, big crowds aren't my thing. You're not going to judge them. You're not going to think they're screwed up. You're not going to think there's something wrong with them. You're just going to think maybe they're a little more introverted. Maybe that's not really their their jam. But when it's a kid, as a parent, you think, what did I do wrong? Did I not, did I not train them to be in a social setting? What, what I'm, where am I failing here as a parent? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book, to get this information out to parents. Because I feel like we're doing ourselves a disservice by not acknowledging and thinking about how our kids are wired. It makes it harder on ourselves. And you're absolutely right that we talk a lot about things like extroversion in adults. You know, you put an introverted adult into a Friday evening cocktail party and make them make small talk with people they barely know all evening. And that sounds horrible. And we get that, but we don't talk about it as much with kids. And so I really do agree with you that by understanding those things, you know, and by recognizing our children are people too, right? Mm -hmm. They yeah. are not just waiting for us to mold them into exactly how we want them to be. They have their own unique styles as well. And sometimes I think those corollaries of imagine if it was a friend or your partner, you know, and uh, and how they would react or how you would react can help us when we're thinking about our kids. And so by that, I mean, for example, you know, when you're working with children who are highly emotional, another dimension uh, of the big three that kids mm -hmm. differ on. Some kids are more prone to frustration and fear and distress. And when they are very worked up, Oftentimes, that is when, as parents, we are trying to implement consequences. Like, sure. it's not okay when you are pulling all the toys off the shelf at Target and throwing them on the floor, right? We're doubling down on consequences. In other words, we're making our highly frustrated, dysregulated child more upset by getting upset with them. Whereas there's different parenting strategies that can work. And I give the analogy of, you know, if I'm laying into my husband about how the laundry is still sitting on the couch a week later after he promised me he was going to fold it, that is not the best time for him to say, honey, let's talk about how we can more productively discuss our differences, right? That is a time when it's like, I got a lot of big feelings and I need to get these out. <laughs> and then after that moment, we can be working on problem solving. And that seems you know, obvious when we're thinking about how that interaction might play out with our significant other, but so often that's what we're doing with kids, right? We are, when they're highly dysregulated, we are implementing consequences and telling them that's not okay. And, and that's just, that's not an effective strategy. So the book is really about what are some of the strategies that as parents we can focus on we can't do everything. And so focus on what are the things that your child really needs and what are the things that are going to help them the most. From what we've already discussed here today and from what I've read in the book, so 
much of this seems like, duh, why, why weren't we talking about this before? So why did it take people so long to, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of people having children going back, you know, however many, you know, thousands of years ago, whatever it is, how did it take this long for someone to sit down and go, huh, maybe they're predisposition to have some of these things? I think that part of the reason that the findings from my field, from behavior genetics, have not made it into mainstream parenting is because so often they are misinterpreted as parents don't matter. Mm -hmm. If genes matter, parents don't matter. But that is absolutely not the case. The message is really just genes matter. Our kids' genes matter. They are not blank slates. They all have their own dispositions. In fact, by understanding that, it can help us as parents. It can help us understand their behavior. It can help us figure out what our particular child needs most and what's most likely to work for our child. But because the message has so often been interpreted or misinterpreted as, oh, parents don't matter, or, oh, there's nothing I can do if it's all in my kids' sure. genes, that parents don't want to hear that, yeah. understandably. We're in the trenches every day. But that is not at all the message. Just because genes matter, it doesn't mean that what we do as parents doesn't matter. It's just easier when we work with our kids' genes as opposed to against them. So I, I know that You've been working with genes. Is it genetics or genealogy? Am I saying that right? Is there a particular term you prefer? It's genetics. Genealogy is actually sort of tracing your ancestors gotcha. across okay. time. Forgive me. Uh, so you've been studying genetics for, for quite a few years, for many years. And I know I saw a TEDx talk of you and you were talking more about addiction. What made you shift into the world of children and to start investigating this process? I study all of the ways that our genes and environments sure. contribute to differences between us. And a lot of my work focuses on substance use and mental health. And we started out studying older individuals who we're having problems with substance use. So trying to figure out why some people can drink socially and other people, it leads to addiction and it can potentially destroy lives. And then of course, what happens is you start going back in development because you realize nobody wakes up one morning and discovers, oh my gosh, I have developed a substance use problem that there it comes from a cycle of behavior. And so you look back, well, what happened earlier? Well, in order to develop a problem, you have to start drinking and you have to establish regular patterns of drinking. And so you start looking at earlier and earlier in development. And what we actually found is that many of the things that make us at risk for substance use or mental health challenges are found in dispositional styles that are evident from very early in childhood. And I think this is a really important point too, because it underscores that dispositions aren't inherently good or bad. So for example, risk-taking is something that can put people more at risk for substance use problems because they're more likely to be excited by the fun of here and now and not think through long-term consequences. As little kids, risk-taking can be hard for us as parents because we're more likely to visit the ER more often, <laughs> have heart attacks as they're dangling from the tops of trees and playground equipment. But CEOs and entrepreneurs are also higher in risk-taking. So risk-taking is not in and of itself a bad thing, 
we all have dispositions that can lead to you know, positive outcomes. We wanna accentuate our strengths and we want to minimize potential challenges that we're gonna have. And I realized that actually that information is helpful for parents because those dispositional styles start very young with kids. It's so it's so funny. And like we were talking before, like I'm starting to see the personality coming out of my daughter. And I, I can't wait till, you know, she gets a little bit older and I can start to learn a little bit more about maybe what some of these predispositions are uh, for her so I can try to understand her a little bit better. I'm so fascinated in the idea of parenting the best way for her, not just parenting the best way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. In fact, I often say there's no one right way to parent. Which is not fair, that, by the way. It's just not fair that there's no one size fits all parenting. Like it's that should be the thing that's there for us. Wouldn't it be nice? Right? I know. It, if it existed, parenting wouldn't be nearly as hard as it is. We would have it figured out by now. I mean, there are probably thousands of parenting books out there. People have been doing this for tens of thousands of years. So why is it challenging? And I think a big answer to that question is really because we haven't been taking into account the complexity that yeah. our kids are all different. They all have their unique wiring. And so the way they react to the world, respond to their environment, the environments they seek out, the things that resonate with them or don't resonate with them, the things that work or don't work, how they respond to us as parents are all related to the way their brains are wired. And so what this book really tries to do is to simplify that and to focus on some of the big areas that kids differ on so parents can use that information to help them in their parenting. Something you talk about in the book is the phrase goodness of fit. Can you talk a little bit more about that for me? Absolutely. So goodness of fit refers to how well a child's environment fits their natural dispositional style. And so when I gave the example of my son being lower on extroversion, and so the environment that I was creating for him of tons of people that he didn't know and lots of activity, that was not a good fit. And so that created a lot of tension in our family. And once I figured that out, I could correct that. And it doesn't mean that you are necessarily going to always have to do what your child wants. I don't mean to suggest that, but it means if you are going to put them in an environment that is not a good fit for them, then you need to prepare. And you also need to prepare that it might not go smoothly. And so goodness of fit really can refer to a variety of different types of environments and different dimensions of kids, but it's referring to whether that environment fits well for that child. I think during the pandemic here, my wife and I, because our, our daughter was born, you know, kind of right when things started to ramp up again, right before Christmas last year. And one of our fears was that we were going to be kind of trapped in the house for a long time and our baby was not going to be able to to be social, wasn't going to understand what other people were because she would only be around us for however long that was going to be. So we tried to make every effort possible to introduce her to people where we could, where it was safe. And, you know, I wonder now, would it even have mattered, you know, if we hadn't, you know, would she, would she have been around people and felt the same thing, whether we did that or not? It probably wouldn't have mattered 
as much as we often think as parents. One of the things that the research shows is consistently that some of the things we think are really big deals actually have small effects on kids because, and that's a good thing, right? It's what makes our yeah. species resilient and survive. And yes, kids might have some setbacks, but they tend to catch up. And there's a variety of ways that their needs can get met. Like you said, even during the pandemic, there's ways of providing human interaction and social stimulation. And that's usually a good enough environment. And so, you know, I talk about the analogy of when you're pregnant, there's some environmental things that you know you want to do. You want to try and eat healthily and you want to try and uh, reduce your stress levels. But Basically, you're just trying to not mess things up and provide a good enough environment that your child can grow and develop. But all the hard stuff, all the big stuff is actually being directed by their genes. And so we're not thinking, wow, I have to take a certain amount of prenatal yoga classes in order for my child to grow arms. Or if I take more, I bet I could grow them an extra arm. It's really... We're just doing good enough that they can grow and develop and that we can nurture that. It's like once our children are born, all of a sudden we think, game on, it's all on us now. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they still have those unique genetic codes that are helping them grow and develop, and it's really not all on us, is something that I think we can feel comforted by as parents. My motto in life as a parent, especially, is good enough. That's what I, I go for. Is it good enough to get? Okay, that's fine. We'll do that. <laughs> and there is tons of research to back that up. <laughs> and speaking of research, in your research, as when you're putting this together and, and diving in, was there something that really stood out to you that you were like, huh, I would not have expected that? So I think that many times the parenting strategies that work best for different types of kids are not always intuitive. And so I'll give the example of highly emotional children. We talked a little bit about that when they are getting so upset, often our natural intuition, right? Our natural response is to clamp down, to put in place a consequence because we think, well, they need to learn that it's not okay to sweep all the cereal boxes off of the grocery aisle because you didn't get to have lucky charms. And we try putting in place consequences. We try perhaps some reward charts for good behavior, but with kids who are naturally predisposed toward high emotionality, oftentimes what happens is they're not getting many rewards. So the child who's already prone to frustration is getting more frustrated. We're implementing more consequences and the behavior is just getting worse. And so actually there's different parenting strategies that work better. Because if you can imagine if your child was struggling with reading or with algebra, you wouldn't think that you could teach them to read or teach them how algebra works by putting in place rewards and consequences. They actually need the skills. They need to understand how to read sure. or how to do algebra. And highly emotional children, they need to learn the skills of how to manage those strong emotions. And consequences and rewards alone aren't teaching them those skills. And so there's other strategies that you can put in place 
that you might not have originally gone to that involve working with your child, problem solving with your child, identifying triggers, having them be a part of the solution. It's not all on you because when we try and implement things on our easily distressed, frustrated, strong-willed children, oftentimes that doesn't go well. It's creating more of a problem. And so that's one example of a way that by understanding how our children are wired and what that means for their development, we can be more effective parents. So we've been talking about the, uh, the the three E's today, and we've talked a lot about emotionality and extroversion, but effortful control is the third one. And we haven't touched too much on that one. Can we just dive into that a little bit before we run out of time? Absolutely. So effortful control is often colloquially called self-control. Uh, I like the term effortful control because it reminds us that it takes effort not to always act on our every desire. And it refers to, it's referred to also as impulsivity, our ability to delay gratification. How much do we want what we want right now? Or do we have the ability to think through the long-term consequences of our actions? And all of our children start out very low on effortful control. That's the bad news because it's related to the development of different parts of our brain. And unfortunately, the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that helps us think through consequences and do more planning, it develops much later. It doesn't fully develop until about the mid-20s. But in addition to the fact that so develops... <laughs> Doesn't And I have to also tell you, there's some evidence that it takes a little bit longer in boys than girls as well. Yeah, I, I'll say one guilty. Of few guilty. areas, <laughs> one of the few areas where we do see pretty robust gender differences. But essentially, what we find is that people also differ tremendously in their ability to delay gratification versus acting on their impulses in the moment. This shows up very early in children and it tends to be fairly consistent across time. So an impulsive child might be the one who's constantly caught with their proverbial hand in the cookie jar or perhaps literal hand in the cookie jar. Whereas the impulsive adolescent might be the one who's much more likely to succumb to peer pressure and to want to head out to places that sound fun and they're not thinking through ooh, mom or dad is going to be really upset when I come home past curfew. And you know the impulsive adult might be more likely to want to be hanging out in a social setting with friends at, later than perhaps we should on a weeknight and not thinking through, oh, I have a lot I have to do at work tomorrow. If I don't do as good of a job, I might not do as well my performance review. I really want that raise. That's a lot of complex thinking. And so... There are strategies that as parents we can put in place to help kids who are lower on their self-control. Well, Dr. Danielle Dick, the book is called The Child Code, Understanding Your Child's Unique Nature for Happier, More Effective Parenting. Really fascinating stuff here. I'm so intrigued by it, and I'm just so glad I got it now, like I said before, because I am a, a new parent, so I'm excited to hit the ground running with this as we move forward. If somebody wants to find more information about you or the book, where should they go? You can find the book at thechildcode.com. There's lots of links to retailers or available at bookstores anywhere, and you can also go to my website, danielledick.com, for lots of resources for parents about everything from parenting to relationships to mental health 
health and substance use. Well, I hope your day of back-to-back interviews all day long is going okay. Uh, hopefully, I'm giving you a few extra minutes here to use the restroom or some before your next one, <laughs> so you're not too stressed Thank out. you so much. <laughs> and as promised, you did make it fun, so I really enjoyed it. Well, I, so I brought much. I brought a mascot to help out with us here. <laughs> it always does help, too. And I have to say, she was exceedingly well-behaved, too. I'm shocked. I'm going to have to give her an extra treat or something today. <laughs> It must mean you're a fabulous parent. Wink, wink. Yes, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Dr. Dick, thank you so much for your time and good luck with everything. Thanks so much. Big thank you to Dr. Danielle Dick for her time. The Child Code is available now, and I do think this can be super helpful to all parents. So I definitely think this could be a good purchase for you. And thank you to all of you for listening this week. As always, until next time, be well.